You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. everyone, welcome to the 220th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We're going to pick up right where we, or Rich, left off last time. At the end of the last episode, it was about 11 o'clock on the morning of Friday, October 3rd, 1862, and after some brisk skirmishing northwest of the town of Corinth, Mississippi, Earl Van Dorn's Confederates had pushed across Cane Creek and deployed for battle. Van Dorn deployed his three divisions and pressed ahead toward the Union defenders, who were positioned along the lines of the old Confederate entrenchments built under PGT Beauregard's direction back in the spring, when the rebels had controlled Corinth and Henry Halleck's Federals were approaching the town. Now, some five months later, Van Dorn's Confederates were the ones approaching Corinth. The rebel commander deployed Mansfield Lovell's division on the right, with Sterling Price's two divisions, commanded by Dabney Morey and Louis Bear, on the left. Rosecrans had called in his outpost detachments and concentrated four divisions, 23,000 strong, to defend Corinth. On October 3rd, three of those divisions had taken up position northwest and north of town, midway between Rosecrans' inner line of redoubts, the College Hill line, and the old Confederate works. Thomas McKean's division was on the left, Thomas Davies in the center, and Charles Hamilton's on the right. The 4th Division, David Stanley's, was held in reserve south of town. On the Confederate right, Lovell's brigades had driven back Colonel John Oliver's advance guard of three regiments and a section of our Federal artillery from McKean's division, which had been sent out the Chihuahua Road to give warning of any rebel advance from that direction. When Oliver was driven back across Cane Creek, he posted his force along a high, steeply sloped ridge where the Memphis and Charleston Railroad and the Chihuahua Road cut through the old Confederate defensive works. Brigadier General John MacArthur, commanding McKean's 1st Brigade, deemed it vital to hold this ridge and moved five regiments forward to reinforce the three that Oliver had already posted there. Davies also received permission from Rosecrans to move his division farther north, up to the line of the old Confederate works. But these movements of MacArthur and Davies were uncoordinated, and as they shifted forward, a large gap opened up between MacArthur's right and Davies' left. 
As the rebels resume their advance, a fierce fight between MacArthur's eight federal regiments and Lovell's three rebel brigades commenced along the ridge south of the railroad and astride the railroad cut south of the old Confederate defensive works. As the rebels rolled forward, Captain James Zeering of the 57th Illinois said, quote, Our men stood the shock nobly, delivering the most steady and effective fire that I have seen during the war. As a hailstorm of bullets from the defending Union infantry and canister from the Yankee artillery swept the railroad cut, the carnage was terrific among Lovell's rebels. Although the initial Confederate assault faltered under the murderous Federal fire, the rebel officers rallied their men and advanced again. With his brigade struggling to push past the railroad tracks and onto the slope of the ridge beyond, Confederate Brigadier General Albert Rust decided that, quote, to have halted would have brought certain destruction upon my command. Rust therefore directed part of his brigade to detour left to avoid the deepest section of the cut, ordered bayonets fixed, and hurled his men forward toward the Union position. In response, the Federal fire intensified, but according to Captain Zeering, quote, it had no effect in checking their march, end quote. He observed that the rebels braved the storm of defensive fire and, quote, advanced on the double quick in the utmost disregard of human life. Meanwhile, east of Turner Creek and west of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, Davies' dispersed division grimly held the old Confederate works against a slashing frontal attack by Sterling Price's rebels. The tough, the tough rebel veterans struggled up the steep slopes of the ridge through a tangle of abatis. Despite heavy musketry that held up Abair's advance, Mari's troops managed to penetrate the gap in the Union line that Tracy mentioned a few moments ago. With this foothold between the two federal divisions, the Confederates had seized the lever by which they could exploit the initiative and pry open the enemy defensive line. As Dabney Mari's Confederates began to roll southward toward Corinth, Sergeant Daniel Ambrose, whose regiment, the 7th Illinois, was on MacArthur's right, summed up the fast-changing tactical situation by noting that with, quote, rebels in our front, rebels on our right and rear, rebels on our left and rear, soon their right and left columns will meet, soon we will be surrounded if we remain here. To prevent a disastrous breakthrough by the rebels, MacArthur and Davies pulled their troops back about one mile, closed the gap between their divisions, and reformed about 900 yards in front, that is north, of the College Hill line. Davies refused his right flank, which means he bent it back at a 90-degree angle, and MacArthur did the same with his left, anchoring that flank on Battery F, an earthwork field fortification containing some federal guns just south of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. At Battery F, MacArthur and Brigadier General Marcellus Crocker's Iowa Brigade of McKean's Division positioned themselves to engage Mari's rebels who were driving southward across the railroad tracks to attack Battery F from the north. Meanwhile, though, Lovell's Confederates advanced, extending the rebel line farther to the south and outflanked McKean's Federals posted in batteries D and E and approached the College Hill line from the west. 
This development forced MacArthur and Crocker to retreat to that final Union defensive line, the College Hill line, which was right on the outskirts of Corinth. At the same time, Sterling Price's rebels assailed Davies' Federals, hurling them back upon Battery Robinette, a position on the College Hill line where Davies' men rallied. Colonel Joseph Mower's brigade of Stanley's division was rushed to Davies' assistance during the retreat. Stanley had alerted his other two brigades to be ready to march to the threatened spot, but at 6 p.m. Van Dorn called a halt to the rebel advance. The Confederates were exhausted from their march to the battlefield, then battling forward all day in brutal heat against the stubborn Federal defenders. Nevertheless, they had pushed the Yankees back nearly two miles to the outskirts of Corinth. And so Van Dorn was confident that when he renewed the battle in the morning, he could smash the Yankees and complete his victory. But contrary to Van Dorn's belief that the Federal defenders were off balance and reeling, the Yankees were actually in better shape than the Confederates. Rosecrans used the hours of darkness during the night to redeploy his four divisions, concentrating them along an arc less than two miles in length, anchored at key strong points on the College Hill line just outside Corinth. McKean's division was posted on the left, in the neighborhood of Corona College and Battery Phillips, west of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad and south of the Memphis and Charleston. Stanley's division anchored its left at Battery Williams, south of the Memphis and Charleston, and its right in and around Battery Robinette, 200 yards north of the railroad. Both redoubts lay less than 700 yards west of the actual railroad junction in Corinth, where the two rail lines crossed over one another. Davies' battered division had stopped their retreat north of town, with its right flank anchored on Battery Powell, and then Hamilton's division constituted the Federal Army's extreme right, beyond Davies' position, and overlooked the junction of the Monterey and Upper Farmington roads. Meanwhile, in arranging his forces for a dawn attack on Saturday morning, Van Dorn kept his divisions in the same alignment they had held on Friday, level on the right, south of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, deployed on high ground west of Battery Phillips. Then Mari's division was in the center, in front of Battery Robinette, and a Bears division, reinforced with the brigade from Mari, was on the left, massed along the line of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad north of town. A Bear was to open the battle again at daybreak. Van Dorn wanted him to pivot to his right, advance down the Purdy Road, and assault Battery Powell. Mari was to open up on Battery Robinette with his artillery, then send his infantry forward to break into Corinth. Lovell, as soon as the divisions to his left were engaged, was to attack from west of town. But Van Dorn's plan miscarried when a Bear became sick and removed himself from command. This, however, wasn't reported to Van Dorn until about 7 a.m. on October 4th. Hebert also neglected to inform his senior brigade commander, Martin Green, about the plan for the battle or the time the attack was to begin. As a result, it took nearly three hours before Green, having at last sorted things out, sent the men forward to start the fighting on Saturday morning. When Hebert's troops, with Green in charge, finally advanced, it was with four brigades deployed in echelon, with the left thrown forward. 
As the division pivoted on its right, the troops advanced and stormed forward toward Battery Powell. In front of Battery Robinette, Morey's three brigades moved forward into the attack down the Memphis Road. Four regimental columns, 100 yards apart, moved against the Union Redoubt. Brigadier General C.W. Pfeiffer's brigade spearheaded the assault, with the 6th Texas Cavalry dismounted and acting as infantry in the road, the 9th dismounted Texas Cavalry east of the road, and west of the road, the 3rd dismounted Arkansas Cavalry and Sturman's Arkansas Sharpshooter Battalion. And just as a footnote, but if you're wondering about these dismounted Confederate cavalry regiments acting as infantry, well, it wasn't really all that unusual here in the Western Theater for the rebel cavalry regiments to have trouble finding enough suitable horses for an entire unit. And sometimes that shortage would reach a point where the unit would simply be forced to act as infantry since they had so few horses. Or sometimes, as the number of horses declined in cavalry regiments, some unlucky units would be ordered to give up their mounts to another regiment, so that by consolidating the horses from several regiments, there could be at least one that was brought up to somewhat full strength. Anyway, all of that's to say that those unlucky Confederate cavalry regiments who had lost their horses, either through attrition or giving them up to another unit, They stayed with the army, but were considered dismounted and acted as infantry. Okay. Well, in the Confederate advance against Battery Robinette, Brigadier General John Moore's brigade moved forward close behind Pfeiffer. As Pfeiffer's troops attacked the enemy position, they were pounded by Union cannon, first with shell, then with blast of canister from three 20-pounder Parrot rifles in Battery Robinette. Those federal guns were manned by Henry Robinette's detachment from the 1st U.S. Infantry. The 9th Dismounted Texas Cavalry sought to make its way into the low ground to the east of the redoubt, but they were checked by the right flank regiments of Colonel John Fuller's Ohio Brigade. As he had been ordered to do, Fuller had deployed his four regiments on the exposed, sloping ground forward of Battery Robinette, with the 43rd Ohio near the crest of the high ground facing west and its right anchored on the earthwork fortification. The 63rd Ohio faced north, with its right resting near the Memphis Road. The 27th Ohio was to the right of the 63rd, and then the 39th Ohio held the right flank of Fuller's line. When he saw the oncoming rebels, Fuller had the 43rd Ohio change front to better face the assault, and he called up the 11th Missouri from Mower's Brigade and posted the Missourians 25 yards to the rear of the 63rd Ohio. Meanwhile, on Pfeiffer's right, his two attack columns there, the 3rd Dismounted Arkansas Cavalry and Sturman Sharpshooters, came on rapidly because they were advancing along the crest of a ridge where there was less sebatus, That is, there were fewer felled trees to slow down their advance. But a killing storm of musketry from Fuller's Yankees and blasts of cannon fire from Battery Robinette quickly brought this rebel thrust to a stop. The bloody slaughter of the Confederate attackers at this spot shocked the Federal defenders. Colonel John Sprague of the 63rd Ohio said that Pfeiffer's, quote, first line was literally shattered to fragments. 
The survivors rushed pell-mell back upon the second line, throwing it into confusion. A company commander in the 63rd Ohio, Captain Oscar Jackson, found the carnage appalling. Jackson said, quote, It seems to me that the fire of my company had cut down the head of the column that struck us. As the smoke cleared away, there was apparently ten yards square, a mass of struggling bodies in butternut clothes. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The struggle for Battery Robinette continued. When the initial Confederate assault wave stalled in the face of intense defensive fire, Brigadier General John Moore's brigade came forward, passing over and through Pfeiffer's bloodied Texans and Arkansans. Moore's troops fought their way toward Battery Robinette. Thomas Duncan of the 2nd Texas Infantry described the scene, quote, When they encountered the abatis, an obstruction of felled trees with sharpened and interwoven branches, the formation was necessarily somewhat broken, just as the enemy's artillery began to blast and wither the moving mass of men. Duncan went on to say that despite the savage federal fire, the Confederate soldiers kept Quote, advancing with remarkable rapidity toward the common objective, Fort Robinette. Conspicuous on horseback, Colonel William P. Rogers, a Mexican war comrade of Jefferson Davis, advanced at the head of his regiment, the 2nd Texas, leading successive charges against the Union Bastion. Captain George Williams of the 1st U.S. Infantry, the company commander whose regulars had been converted into gunners, to man the 20-pounder parrots in Battery Robinette, 
remembered that Moore's rebels, quote, gained the ditch but were repulsed. They then reformed and restorming carried the ditch and the outside of the work, our infantry supports having fallen back a short distance to the rear in slight disorder. As they struggled forward to storm Battery Robinette, the soldiers of Moore's brigade, like Pfeiffer's before them, were literally blown apart by discharges of canister from the Union guns. In addition, deadly volleys of musketry delivered at point-blank range by Fuller's stubborn Ohioans decimated the Confederate ranks. Caught within this chaotic firestorm, Lieutenant Charles Labrizan of the 42nd Alabama later recalled how, quote, The whole of Corinth, with its enormous fortifications, burst upon our view. We were met by a perfect storm of grape, canister, cannonballs, and miniballs. Oh, God, I have never seen the like. The men fell like grass. I saw men running at full speed, stop suddenly, and fall upon their faces, with their brains scattered all around, others with legs and arms cut off, shrieking with agony. As the attacking Confederates, despite suffering fearful losses, nevertheless closed in on Battery Robinette, Union Captain Williams continued his account of this desperate combat, saying, quote, The men of the 1st U.S. Infantry, after having been driven from their guns, resorted to their muskets and were firing from the inside of the embrasures at the enemy on the outside, with the distance of about 10 feet intervening. But the rebels having gained the top of the work, our men fell back into the angle of the fort as they had been directed to do in such an emergency. Two shells were thrown from Battery Williams into Battery Robinette, one bursting on top of it and the other near the right edge. With Battery Robinette in imminent danger of being overrun, in response to shouted commands from their officers, the 11th Missouri and 27th Ohio leaped into action, and along with the remainder of the hard-pressed 63rd Ohio, charged forward into the Confederates, who were struggling to maintain the momentum of their attack on Robinette. The Federal charge broke the back of the rebel assault and sent the Confederates reeling back into the woods, from which, less than half an hour before, they had confidently emerged. Among the numerous Confederates cut down in the shadow of Battery Robinette was the gallant Colonel Rogers. One of our favorite Civil War artists, Keith Rocco, has done a painting called Key to Corinth, showing Colonel Rogers on horseback leading one of the successive rebel rushes on Battery Robinette, and we'll post that painting on the website. There's also a rather famous photograph of Confederate dead that was taken after the battle, and one of the bodies in the photo is almost certainly Colonel Rogers. At any rate, while the fierce combat for Battery Robinette was raging, some of Mari's Confederates, just to the east of Robinette and west of Battery Powell, advanced southward down the Elam Creek bottom and fought their way into Corinth. There they joined perhaps 1,500 rebel soldiers from Green's command, which had overrun Battery Powell and hurled Davies' badly mauled division of Federals back through the town and beyond the tracks of the Memphis and Charleston. According to Moore, this collection of mixed rebel commands, including elements from Moore's own brigade and that of Brigadier General William Cable, quote, penetrated to the very heart of Corinth, driving the enemy from house to house and frequently firing in at the windows and driving them out. 
Green's rebels on the left held the federal works north of Corinth and occupied the town square and mingled with Maury's troops near the depot. Yet Confederate staff officer Captain Edward Cummins noted, quote, But we scarcely got in when we were met and overwhelmed by the enemy's massive reserves. Our lines melted under their fire like snow in a thaw. Hit by a federal counterattack that rolled in from the south, east, and west, and converged on the spot where the tracks of the two rail lines crossed over one another, the exhausted rebels who remained in town were soon driven back in disorder. In fact, most of the Confederate troops were already in the act of exiting Corinth when counterattacking Union forces entered the town. The rebels had penetrated to the heart of Corinth, but could not exploit their breakthrough. Located on ground significantly lower than the surrounding terrain, Corinth itself was dominated by the heavy guns of Battery Williams and the still defiant Battery Robinette. And to the east, Hamilton's division of Federals still held the high ground on the far edge of town. There, his field batteries could also drop shot and shell into Corinth. This being the case, for the Confederates to have tried to maintain their foothold in town would have invited further unnecessary slaughter of their already thinned ranks. As the rebels fell back, Battery Powell was soon recovered by the Federals, sealing the spot where the Confederate breakthrough had occurred. By one o'clock that afternoon, Van Dorn's shattered army pulled back and then limped northward in full retreat, with Lovell's division acting as rear guard. Remarkably, Lovell's division had not participated in the general attack on Corinth, but had spent the morning skirmishing in front of the College Hill line. Lovell's reluctance to join in the Confederate assault on October 4th generated considerable debate and controversy afterward. The Confederate disengagement and withdrawal went very smoothly, but some officers were upset when Van Dorn ordered the army to halt for the night at Chihuahua. By marching another four miles, the men could have reached the army's supply trains, which had been left behind so as not to impede the march to Corinth. And by marching an additional four miles beyond that, they could have secured Davis's bridge over the Hatchie River along the army's line of retreat. But Van Dorn ordered a halt at Chihuahua because, incredibly, he hadn't yet given up on the idea of taking Corinth. He actually proposed renewing the attack the next day from a different direction, from the south. Sterling Price, however, put his foot down, telling Van Dorn the army was too badly bloodied and exhausted to try the impossible again. Meanwhile, back at Corinth, it took some time for the Federals to realize that the battle was over. By mid-afternoon, though, Rosecrans was convinced that no further enemy attacks were coming, and to say he was greatly relieved would be an understatement. The Federal commander had gotten little sleep the night before, perhaps just 30 minutes worth, and he was worn out by the stress of two days of combat. Rosecrans, therefore, decided that the next day, Sunday, would be soon enough to start off in pursuit of the Confederates. The two-day Battle of Corinth had seen fierce and costly fighting. Each side had about 20,000 men engaged. Van Dorn's Confederates lost 505 killed, 2,150 wounded, and 2,180 missing. Rosecrans' force lost 355 killed, 1,840 wounded, and just 324 missing. 
The fighting on Friday, October 3rd, had essentially been a long delaying action, with some bitter fighting as the Federals attempted to keep the Confederates from reaching and breaching the College Hill defensive line until darkness brought an end to the action. On Saturday the 4th, the Federal artillery and the redoubts along the College Hill line played a key role in stopping the Confederate attacks. And even when the rebels penetrated the Federal defenses and reached the center of Corinth, they lacked the numbers and direction to exploit that advantage. And finally, although the Confederate infantry displayed fantastic bravery in their attacks on October 4th, the Union soldiers fought just as well, refusing to admit defeat even when, even when the rebels broke through into Corinth. At any rate, Earl Van Dorn wouldn't escape after the battle without having to fight his way out, because Ulysses S. Grant was preparing to cut off the Confederate retreat and destroy the withdrawing rebel army. That story, however, will have to wait until next time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually a Civil War magazine, specifically a back issue of Blue and Gray magazine. Yep, uh, the summer 2002 issue featured a lengthy article titled, Corinth, Mississippi, Crossroads of the Western Confederacy. And the article uh, by Stacy Allen, the historian at Shiloh National Military Park, not only covers all of the Civil War action at and around Corinth, for example, it also covers the Battle of Iuka, but there are tons of excellent maps. Uh, so that's Volume 19, Issue 6, from Summer 2002, a blue and gray magazine. It's well worth having if you want to pick it up. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book and magazine recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 63, and it's about the three-fifths compromise regarding slavery at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Uh, so the members of the Strawfoot Brigade will hopefully enjoy listening to that. And we want to thank the newest members who have joined since the last show, Nina, Chuck, Jenny, and John. Yep, thanks, ladies and gentlemen. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the Federals' missed opportunity at Davis's Bridge. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.